Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more episodes of this show, head to cageclub.me slash believe. And to check out other great shows, head to cageclub.me. If you have an idea for a show topic, would like to be a guest, want to tell me how much you like the show, or how much you hate it, or just want to say hi, send me an email, john at cageclub.me. That's j-o-h-n at cageclub.me. A reduction will sometimes result in the whole Engrams apparently disappearing, but it is obvious from this... Hey, John, how's it going, man? What you reading there? It sounds interesting. Oh, oh, hey, it's Cage Club co-founder Mike Manzi. <laughs> well, so it's a funny story. So a few months ago, I was I was walking through the city and uh, somebody asked if I wanted to take a free stress test. Oh. Yeah, and so they asked me all these personal questions, and then they gave me this copy of this book called Dianetics. Uh, and, and, you know, it, this being quarantine time, I decided to take it off the shelf and start reading it. Well, I run a Tom Cruise podcast, but it's since ended and, uh, I've kind of got some free time on my hands. So I've been going around to shows, seeing if there's anything Cruise related. And if I'm not mistaken, Dianetics and Tom Cruise have a connection, don't they? Yeah, I guess apparently this is like a, a book that's used by a group of people called Scientologists. And, uh, I, I guess Tom Cruise is, is, is one of them. Oh, I think I've heard of them. Now, normally on the network, we like to separate the artist from his work, but uh, sometimes you just can't help it. And in this case, uh, maybe I can make an exception and uh, join your discussion about Scientology. Yeah, well, so it's interesting. I just It just happens that I uh, in- invited some something of an expert on this whole Scientology game, a guy named Tony Ortega, who actually writes about Scientology for a website called The Underground Bunker. So, uh, yeah, if you're not doing anything else, why don't, you, why don't you just join us? Yeah, I've got some free time to kill, and uh, absolutely, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't wait to learn more about Engrams. Uh, all right, so I'm John Brooks. And I'm Mike Manzi. And this is Hard to Believe. Tony Ortega, thank you for joining us. Um, the first thing I want to ask you, you have become kind of the biggest thorn in the side of, of Scientology. Uh, <laughs> how did you get to this point? Well, I, I appreciate you saying that, That's, but it's not true. Come on now. <laughs> Leah, Remini, Leah Remini is a much bigger headache for them than I am because yeah. she reaches so many more people than I do. And I, I just, I'm just glad to have a front row seat for what happens in Scientology. And I just report it one way or the other, whether they're winning or losing. And um, no, I'm not, I'm not the activist and, and not the lightning rod that Leah is. And, and she does such an amazing job. So, but yeah, how did I, so anyway, I just, I kind of gave myself this job several years ago as beat reporter for Scientology. Um, nobody else was doing it. And for good reason. Um, and, but I enjoy it. I really, I really like having that front row seat. So, so what's been the, the, the backlash. I mean, you're pretty relentless um, and pretty open about the way that you talk about Scientology. There's all, always the horror stories about Scientology sending their goons out after people. Um, have you experienced any of that? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an occupational hazard when you're telling the truth about Scientology. That's the last thing they want out there, you know. Right. And uh, so they, they spend a, a lot of money 
trying to destroy Leah Remini and trying to destroy Mike Rinder. And they spend a lot of money trying to destroy me. And they have for many years. Uh, it kind of comes and goes. I think what happens is David Miscavige will suddenly start yelling at his people. What have you done about Leah Remini lately? You know, and so uh, it it'll it'll be just there's always something online. They're always putting something online, smearing me and lying about me. But then every once in a while, it'll get really scummy and dirty the way they like to operate. And they go after my family. They go after my friends. It's, it's you know, they never just call me up and, and tell me what's, you know, what they don't like about one of my stories, which I would mm -hmm. be grateful for. I would love to put their <laughs> point of view in the stories. Instead, they're such weenies. You know, they, 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 they try to pull off these elaborate operations to try to get my wife fired from her job, for example. They've done that like three different times over the last five years and uh twice their private investigators had sh have showed up at my mother's house trying to intimidate her i mean just really scummy shit they try to pull off and they do the same thing to leah remedy mike render ron miscavige gets a lot of it um there are a few of us that just get targeted over and over again and then there are uh sometimes like whenever somebody new would show up on one of leah's uh, programs they would get it for a while so you know, they're still doing the same things they were doing 40 years ago because they're still operating from a playbook L. Ron Hubbard wrote in the 50s and 60s. Mm -hmm. You're you're not you don't hold back in in um, classifying Scientology as a cult, right? Well, I avoid that word in general just because it's so useless. It, it, for the most part, when when somebody uses a colored cult, they usually mean it in a sense a church I don't like. You know what I mean? I mean, there's no real there's no real definition. I mean, there are academics that will give you a very precise definition based on eight or ten criteria, but that's not how people use it. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, I'll see people say, "Well, you know," when I write something about Scientology, they'll say, "Well, they're not a church; they're a cult." But that doesn't say anything. It doesn't that doesn't mean anything. There's not like a law on the books that said, "Well, if it is a cult, then they have to be put out of business." You know what I'm saying? It's 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 just a word that since nobody has a definition for it, I don't like to use it because then what happens is you have these endless fights online between right. people over whether it's a cult or not. And I just feel like that's a big waste of time. What is important is, is that this controlling totalitarian organization, whatever you want to call it, is ripping apart families, destroying people financially, employing children for 90 hours a week without pay, forcing young women to have abortions. I mean, that's what's important, not what you call it. No, I agree with that. And I think it's a very difficult thing to um, distinguish between what is a religion and what is a cult. So much subjectivity to it, of course. Most religions don't force you to divorce your family, like if you you know leave them. But Well, like, for example, they put people through interrogations about their masturbation habits. I mean, they can, they can call themselves a church if they want to, but I mean, what kind of organization does right. that? Yeah, yeah. So... One of the things that I, I'm very interested in um, is David Miscavige, who is someone who I don't think enough people know a ton about. Um, we hear tons about LRH, and that guy's been dead for 35 years. Miscavige has been running the show basically since then. Uh, he strikes me as a particularly sociopathic person. <laughs> he scares me, right? Like I look at him and I see him talk, and I I I imagine a serial killer, and I it just is. He's terrifying. But he's only five foot one, John. <laughs> well, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, what what do you actually know about 
about Ms. Cabbage that most people don't know um, in your reporting and in your investigation. Um, who who yeah. is he? Well, you know, um, he's an interesting character because he's this South Philly rough-hewn character that has a, a very unpolished way of speaking. Uh, he's, he's not well-educated. I don't think he even finished high school. And yet, because he came up through Scientology and very at a very early age became one of Hubbard's favorites, um, he then muscled his way into its leadership and now runs this worldwide multi-billion-dollar organization, where what he says is just absolute law. I mean, he's actually got he's actually got a crew that follows him around all day, recording everything he says. Um, and you know, I try to tell law enforcement this because it would be, someday that's going to make excellent evidence, but, um, he's, uh, you yeah. know, people ask me, uh, about the difference about the two. The thing about Hubbard, which you got to keep in mind is that Hubbard came up with all of these toxic policies and disgusting rules about destroying people's lives and ripping apart families. But Hubbard also had this side of him, uh, you know, you could, he, ha- he could sense when these people working for him around the clock, day after day, year after year, were at the breaking point. And he, he knew when to go over and pat them on the back and say, you know, I really couldn't get anywhere without good, hardworking people like you. And that little bit of encouragement would keep them going for years. Miscavige lacks that trait. He is just, he just, he, you know, he, his idea is, Hubbard came up with all these great things. I'm just going to, you know, wield them to the utmost. And he's just ruthless and and relentless. Um, and he doesn't have that sense of, of when to let up and tell a joke and encourage people. So that's the biggest difference. But otherwise, they are still operating. He still is operating from the playbook that Hubbard wrote. But he's, mm-hmm. he's a guy, Miscavige, you know... Uh, I thought it was interesting when the story came out that uh, Tom, Tom Cruise had, had been, um, they'd been auditioning girlfriends for him and brought him Nazanin Boniati and uh, Nazanin, who's, you know, who's now this wonderful accomplished actress. She was, it was early in her career and she dated Tom for about three months. And, and one of the things that drove them apart was that she just couldn't understand Miscavige. Miscavige has this thick Philly accent and really gruff way of talking. You know, uh, to, to get an insight into Miscavige, John Brousseau, John Brousseau not only worked very closely with Miscavige, but was actually his brother-in-law for like 15 years. John Brousseau told me the best, the person who has captured Miscavige the best was Ben Stiller in Dodgeball. Do you remember that character? <laughs> he said, that is Miscavige. He said, I don't, he, I don't know if he knows the guy or not, but that is Miscavige. So, you know, he's just this very macho, homophobic, you know, guy that thinks he's running this 1950s Navy. And it's just bizarre. Without without Tom Cruise and, and Miscavige, it, it seems to me like the story that I understand uh, is that LRH fades away. Scientology starts to kind of dwindle a little bit. And then, and then it seems like Miscavige and Cruise as a sort of power couple kind of bring it back into into relevance um 
how how important do you think Cruz really is? I've heard varying sort of conflicting um, narratives about this, but how how important do you think Cruz really is to the continued existence of Scientology? Well, Scientology was so fortunate because you're right. Hubbard had just died in January '86, and not long after that, just a few months, Mimi Rogers started bringing Tom around to this um, Scientology field office that she had actually owned at one point and uh, started him on courses. And they got married on May 9th, 1987. And and even uh, uh, the what was the book written by Andrew Morton, right? Wrote a great book about Tom. He didn't realize the significance of that date. May 9th is Dianetics Day. And, and for these... So that shows you by May 9th, 1987, Tom was so much into Scientology because of Mimi that he got married on Dianetics Day. So, yeah, Scientology was very fortunate that they got Tom at that point because the death of the founder is always really difficult for any of these kinds of groups. And Mm -hmm. some of them don't survive it. So this was perfect timing. Mm -hmm. But also you have to keep in mind, while, while Tom's coming in at that time was very important and he was already a star. This wasn't like some, you know, before he started making movies, he was, he'd already put out several movies by then. He was already a big star. Not only that, but that was exactly the time when Scientology was having its most successful marketing campaign of all time. That was exactly the time when they were going out with their TV ads featuring the blow, the erupting volcano. Oh, right. And it would say page, you know, how do I, how do I get a better job? Page 150. How do I save my marriage? Page 223. And then the volcano would show up on, and it was very intriguing and, and, and mystifying. And, oh, this book has all the answers. It was huge. The, uh, they, they sold so many Dianetics books in those those late eighties years. And by 1990, Scientology was at its greatest extent, which was about a hundred thousand people. They've never had the millions that they claim. But top former executives tell me that, no, it was about 100,000, and they were selling more books than ever, and they had Tom Cruise. So, it was, you know, when, when it might have been a really bad time for Scientology because Hubbard died, it turned out to be probably their most successful period ever. And then uh, in 91, the Time Magazine uh, cover story came out calling Scientology the worldwide uh, cult of greed and power, exactly what the wording was. And it's been shrinking ever since. And uh, Tom actually, Tom actually left Scientology. We didn't know this until years later, because uh, uh, Miscavige really didn't like Mimi because Mimi's dad was what they call in Scientology a squirrel. He ran his own independent Scientology shop, and that made uh, in Scientology thinking that made her a, a connected to a suppressive person. That makes her PTS. And we don't want Tom huh. to be with somebody who's PTS. And so um, I wrote a story about this. That, uh, Marty Rathman really helped me out. This is when Marty Rathman was still helping us out. Um, he helped me out on a story that was a really cool story about how Miscavige actually encouraged Tom to have an affair with Nicole while they were filming Days of Thunder and ultimately broke them up, uh, broke up Tom and Mimi so that he could be together with Nicole. I had a question about Cruz, and was there a point sort of around like 2005 where everything with, you know, Oprah in the couch to Matt Lauer in the glib and Katie Holmes and everything, was this a sort of an attempt to say, hey, look, Scientology is 
like accepted by Tom Cruise. It's affecting his life. And then was there sort of like this major backlash or it all seemed to go completely awry. And then they're like, no, no, no more of this ever again. It's sort of been like, you know, 15 years in my mind that I've even like thought of, uh, you know, a celebrity sort of attached. Every once in a while you hear of Travolta, but even now I don't even really feel like he's all that associated anymore in people's minds. Basically, Tom had been kind of pulled out of it by Nicole Kidman when they broke up, they really made uh, their job from 2001 to 2004 to spin him up and get him back in. And he, by 2004, he was the most enthusiastic Scientologist in the world. Miscavige wanted to honor him for that. And so that's why in October 2004, they had the ceremony and gave him the Freedom Medal of Valor. The, the highest thing you can usually get in Scientology is a Freedom Medal, but they gave him the Freedom Medal of Valor. It was bigger. Um and they, they produced this video uh, of, about him with an interview of him for that October 20, 2004 ceremony. That's the video that got leaked in 2008 that was so fun for everybody. Of, of <laughs> but, but we didn't know about that in 2004 yet. That was only for Scientologists. So then when 2005 comes around, you're right. What they did was he got rid of his a longtime publicist, Pat Kingsley, and replaced her with his sister, who was also a Scientologist. Oh. And that's when... You know, they had been, I think Miscavige was so excited that Tom was now back in and was so enthusiastic. They decided, let's use him. And so they sent him out in 2005 to basically become the ambassador for Scientology. And it was a disaster. I mean, the Matt Lauer thing, and there were other journalists he argued with, and he looked like a lunatic. And very quickly, they shut that down. And you're right. Since then, he's said very, very little. Every once in a while in an interview, He'll say a couple of things, but like I said, it, it tends to be the kind of thing where the where it's not just Tom. If you if they're talking to Elizabeth Moss or Erica Christensen or Bonnie Rabisi or you know Ethan Supley or whoever, um, what they'll the most they'll usually say is, "Well, you know, it's really done uh, great things for me. I'm really glad I, I'm I'm part of it. And if you're interested in it, you should read a book." And they're ta- they're trained. That's all they should say. They should never talk about the auditing, about the past life therapy about the interrogation. They never are supposed to talk about what Scientology actually is. They're just supposed to act offended if somebody asks about it. And then their go-to criticism is, well, would you say that to a Jewish person? You know, that's, they've been taught to do that. And it's, you know, it's so obnoxious because, you know, Scientology is harming people. So it is legitimate asking them about it. Um, But yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's the quick version of what happened to Tom. But you're right. In 2005, he came out, very purposely as the ambassador of Scientology, it was a disaster and he has kept pretty quiet since then. And so have most of the celebrities. Every once in a while, you'll see um, Kirstie Alley and uh, maybe Vonnie Urbisi and Marisol Nichols will all say something within a week. And then I know Miscavige just put out the word. You know what I mean? I mean, they, they, they jump when he tells them to. But it, having him in the fold is still really important to them in order to remain relevant. Is that yeah. is that true, or are they kind oh, of no, moved on to other? You're absolutely spot on. Absurd. I mean, he's absolutely their number one asset, no question. Yeah. Um, people yeah. ask me, well, are they grooming him to take over? And I point out, you know, the celebrities have always been ornaments. Um, in 1955, L. Ron Hubbard announced Project Celebrity. He literally called it that, and put a and and put a bounty on celebrities' heads. If you bring in a bound, if you bring in a celebrity, you'll get a bonus, you know, and he actually produced a list. You should check out this list. It's online. Uh, the list that he originally came up with in Project Celebrity it included, this was 1955, so it included people like Danny Kaye, you know, wow. and um, 
Yeah. So they didn't have very much success for a long time. But then in the six, late 60s, they started to get a few people in. And then uh, <clears throat> Travolta was a big get in 75 and uh, Kirstie Alley in like 79 or something. And then, and then they got Cruz in 86. So this was always kind of a goal for the church to have these celebrities because Hubbard knew if you have these uh, celebrities involved, it will tend to make us look more mainstream. And one of the key rules is they need to keep their mouths shut. I mean, I've actually gotten the program where they teach celebrities. Jason Begay confirmed that he went through this, where they teach you how not to say a word about what actually goes on in Scientology. So the most you'll ever hear from Tom or Travolta, for the most part, is usually just, you know, it's really been great for me. You should buy a book and check it out yourself. They're trained just to say that. They rarely say more than that. Mm. So it was really unusual mm-hmm. when they sent Tom out in 2005. But anyway, they've always been ornaments. They've always been very important to Scientology's image. But it's the sea organization that runs Scientology. You And, and, right. and David Miscavige is the captain of the Sea Org. You can't even be the most lowly member of the Sea Org unless you've signed a billion-year contract and you're willing to work 365 days a year for $50 a week when they pay you. So I just don't see, and there have and there have been a few celebrities that have done that, but I just don't see Tom Cruise doing that, and he is not going to take over. He is not <laughs> going to be a leader of Scientology as long as he's not a member of the Sea Org. I could see Tom Cruise living a billion years, but uh, the way that that guy ages. But um, uh, yeah, you're, you're probably right. Uh, for those that don't know what Sea Org is, can you give a little sure. elevator pitch? So uh, Hubbard started everything with Dianetics in 1950, and then and then uh, it became Scientology in 52, and 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 he went to he then he kind of centered things in D.C. for a while, and things kind of got hot from here in the United States, so he went over to England in 59. And was really flourishing in the mid '60s, but then by '66 things were getting hot from there because whenever the government started looking into things, it looked bad. And so in '67 he he literally just took to the sea because the United States was too hot for him, the United Kingdom was too hot, and he 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 got these three ships and he got I don't know 300 young people, and went and ran Scientology from a sh- from a ship for the next uh, eight years from sea. And so that crew with him became known as the Sea Organization. When he was finally sick and tired of that and wanted to get back to land, they ended up in Florida in 1975, and the Sea Org moved to land. And so today, the Sea Org runs all of the most sensitive uh, you know, c- compounds, like the Flag Land Base in, in Clearwater, Florida, the uh, Int Base or Gold Base in, in near Hemet, California, um, you, you have to be a high-ranking Sea Org person to get into some of these places. And they're, they're on land, they still wear naval uniforms, and they still have naval uh, you know, ranks, but they are on land. Okay, so my impression of the relationship between celebrities and particularly Hollywood actors, right, and Scientology, is that the hook for them is... They're looking for some sort of religious purpose, but they're too busy and they got a ton of money. And Scientology is a great religion for someone with lots of money and not a ton of time, um, you know, to go to church or whatever. Uh, is that basically it? Like, I, I understand the value that Scientology, that celebrities have to Scientology. I don't quite understand what gets so many celebrities in the door in the first place. I don't think it's the time thing. Because I remember uh, Leah Remini saying that when she was uh, filming King of Queens, and you can imagine how demanding it is 
mm-hmm. to do a, a weekly series like that. She was going to the Hollywood Celebrity Center six nights a week. Oof. So, so it's not a time thing. No, <laughs> let me let me just describe a little bit of how Scientology works and, I, and I, why I think it one one reason why it appeals to celebrities. When you go to a church or a synagogue or a mosque, what are you expecting? That there's a group of people who are going to listen to one person who's going to lead the group through a homily or a sermon. And it's, and it's, it might be something from the Holy book that you cherish, or maybe some, you know, you know, it's a story from the desert 2000 years ago. It's some shared knowledge that everybody can, you know, partake in. Scientology is nothing like that. Okay. When you go to Scientology, it's not a group thing at all. It's just you and your auditor and your auditor is not telling you about, you know, Jesus or Muhammad or something from the past. All they want to know is questions about you. You're asked, you're asked questions and, and, and they can't evaluate the answers. So, okay, you've got an issue in your life. You have a problem memorizing lines. Well, let's go back in your past and try to figure out what that's coming from. And so they just ask you more hundreds of questions about your childhood, about even before that, originally with Dianetics is about what happened to you in the womb. In Scientology, it's about what happened to you in past lives, but you're gonna track down this incident that happened to you. And along the way, you might be spinning tales about how you were ruling planets and other parts of the galaxy and uh, something happened. You know, I've talked to a guy that said he was, he was in a war on a planet and got his head chopped off. And ever since then, he he's noticed that his other lives, he tended to be beheaded. And then today he's got neck issues. Okay. This is, this is how Scientologists think. Okay. But the important thing is it's all about you, 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 what do you remember? What, what can you tell us? And that narcissistic focus, I think is one thing that appeals to some actors and actresses, I think. And the other thing is they love bomb you and they know the value of celebrities. Mm. And so they cater to them and will provide all kinds of services and help and free labor uh, in ways that make it really attractive to be a part of it. It seems like they really stroke your ego, right? And that's exactly what an actor is looking for and validation as well and things like that. But it, it always, it's amazing to hear to me that, you know, it's all sort of data scraping that they don't sit around in groups and read Dianetics, like, you know, like it was a scripture or, but that, you know, like right. that's kind of a room that I picture at the, Church of Scientology that just doesn't exist. That's right. Well, they well they did. They do have chapels now, and they have quote Sunday service. But all of that is a sop to the public because they know when people hear the word church, they expect there to be some kind of a Sunday service. It's pure PR. I've talked to people that were in the church twenty or thirty years that never went to a single Sunday service because that's not really what Scientology is really about. It's about auditing. It's about one on one, and it's mostly about you talking about yourself. Tony, one thing I tell my, I I teach religion, right? So one thing I tell my students is if anybody ever in your life approaches you uh, and asks if you want a free stress test, turn around and (laughs) run in the opposite direction. Yeah, the stress test thing is really nefarious. I I remember I used to live in New York City as well. And so I I would transfer at Times Square every morning. And and you probably have encountered this, right? Where they have that table 
And, and they frequently do it during rush hour when people are going to be stressed out, right? And they're going to be like, oh, yeah, that, that I can take five minutes for a free stress test, of course. And, you know, they kind of hide behind that. So I know that's one of their hooks to the, the common folk, right? Um, in, in your experience and the people that you've talked to who have become Scientologists and left or have sort of dipped their toes in and, and not gone all the way in, um, is, there, is there a profile of the sort of person that is most susceptible to Scientology or is it anybody? That's a good question because, you know, the vast, vast majority of people are either not tempted or even if they give it a, a, a moment's thought, turn away from it. They only get us. See, I always try to remind people, even with the celebrities, you know, journalists will call me up and say, why do they have so many celebrities? I'll say, stop. They've got a few. Okay, <laughs> they've ma- they've managed to get a few celebrities and we know about them. And so they stick in our minds, but they really don't have very many. And the same thing with their general population. Only a small percentage of people gets involved in Dianetics and Scientology and sticks with it. Most people almost immediately figure out that there's something very bizarre about it. And that is, you know, they put out this face that they're kind of like a corporate training thing. And and uh, they, they use very slick advertising. But they can only hide for so long because once you get into it, they've got to get into the Hubbard material. And it's wacky. You know, so not very many people stick with it. But as far as what does make people susceptible, they have this practice they call finding your ruin. When they first meet you, they're working very hard to figure it is where you're vulnerable. And I've talked to people like, you know, I knew a guy that he was a physicist. How does a, how does a physicist get involved in a group that's so anti-scientific? And he said, I was just, I was in a very vulnerable point. I'd, I'd broken up in this relationship. They, they, they figure out what it is that all of us face challenges in our lives that we are bewildered by and what Scientology is selling is certainty, right? Unfortunately, there is no owner's manual to the human being and we don't always know the best thing to do, but Scientology pretends that it does know the best thing. And a lot of people at certain times in their lives are very vulnerable to that song that we have the answer for anything that's going wrong in your life. So they, they look for that particular button, they call it, and push it. And uh, uh, people can get caught up. Even I've talked to people who went in skeptical. Right, right. And then, and then very quickly found themselves completely caught up in it. Um, some, some of it at the beginning level is just some real cheap parlor tricks, the stress test, the uh, personality test, I mean, this stuff is laughable if you kind of know what's going on. But to a person that's looking for answers, it can seem like, wow, these people have got me figured out. I think with Tom in particular, this is a guy who's just a natural seeker in his life. He'd had, if you know his history, um, his father had basically abandoned him. He He grew up with his sisters and his mother and all these women. And I think he was really looking for, you know, before he became an actor, he was studying at the seminary. Yeah. He was going to become a Catholic priest. He wanted something that he could believe in deeply and be a part of and be a real, you know, warrior for, soldier for. And, you know, once you do buy into the idea that L. Ron Hubbard actually discovered all the secrets of the universe <laughs> and that the rest of us are deluded fools on a prison planet and only Scientology has all the answers, once you buy into that idea, it's really powerful and it's, it can be very difficult to get out of it. 
I mean, that that also seems like it happens to a lot of people just in religion across the board who end up sort of becoming zealots to a degree. But Scientology kind of doesn't hide behind, uh, you know, a cross or a symbol quite like that. They're all these sort of businessmen is the way that I mostly picture them. And so inherently, I think I just see they approach everybody like a mark. And if that is your go-to sort of stage one way to approach somebody, then there's nothing really benevolent in your design at all in the first place. It just seems like they're looking for suckers and they prey upon people's weaknesses. And I can understand people falling for that, uh, but I don't, you know, how can you condone a person um, sort of like doing that to another person in the first place, like preying upon their weaknesses like that? So, uh, Early on, I've just always had a bad feeling about about them in general. And most people do, and most people are not tempted. But a small percentage of people get involved. And, and you know, one of the things I, I find interesting about L. Ron Hubbard's early lectures, and this guy gave lectures every other day for 15 years. There's just so many of them to go through. But I've gone through a lot of them. I'm amazed at in his lectures in the fifties and sixties, how often he, he seems to be really like uh, trolling. I mean, he is trolling. He's really trolling his audience to see how much he can get away with. And I'm just amazed that people in the audience couldn't hear this and think this guy's having us on, but uh, he, he, um, he was something, he, you know, we keep hearing about what a charismatic guy he was, but when I hear the lectures, I just, I hear the bombast. I just can't believe anybody mm. thought this guy was was serious because he's such a joker. I mean, he he reminds me of Trump. <laughs> a lot of people started start people started bringing up that comparison early in the campaign five years ago. Yeah, and uh, uh, I just was you know, Scientologists tend to be conservative, and a lot of ex Scientologists tend to be conservative. And I know that if I start talking about Trump, some of them get unhappy, but. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, people ask me, is there any possibility Trump could be a Scientologist? I said, no way, because because <laughs> the thing about being a Scientologist is it requires a ton of reading. <laughs> That's fair enough. Yeah. And also being a follower, right, which which he is incapable of doing. Mm. But he does. Like when I watch some of those old reels of LRH, I, I do. It does. There's a lot of Trump overlap there. Right. There's there's the faux intellectualism. It's 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 pretty. Mm-hmm pretty creepy he comes across almost as lecherous in the footage in going clear that i was watching like again just um you know not a very benevolent type of personality as far as i can tell and like hearing you say like he was kind of trolling his audience kind of makes perfect sense when you think about how these people ended up sort of keeping themselves there to a degree like you know what other way can you get someone to do that than to just believe your bullshit like through and through to the very end, right? And when he was sincere, he was quite open about his goals. I mean, he in, in he he produced these really bizarre um, sort of he called them affirmations. They were these uh, sort of self hypnotism kind of uh, lines he'd written out for himself to play back on tape to kind of build up his confidence. And in those, he was admitting that you know he was basically doing all this to enslave people. I mean, you know, because he wanted women to want him and he wanted to enslave men. And he's kind of open about it when he's, you know, in that privacy of his own writing to himself. But uh, no, he 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 was quite a very singular person. And so the thing is, he did lead a fascinating life. 
The problem is he lied about virtually every aspect of it. If he had just stuck to the truth. <laughs> well, is is that what is that what takes him sort of off into another direction than I don't know someone like Gene Roddenberry, right? Who like again both sort of based in science fiction to begin with, and you know Star Trek's teachings are you know much better for society, I'd say, than something like uh, you know Battlefield Earth or whatever else Elrond had written in his life. But like you know what? Where do you? How do you take it from just being this pulp writer to you know this faux sort of messiah of some kind? It's I you know you got to give him credit for the success of Dianetics. It, he, his timing was good. Um, I think it's a, it's just a turgid read. It's a terrible book, but for some reason, people in 1950 were fascinated by this idea. The idea in the original book in Dianetics was essentially that you're suffering from problems today. Your potential is being held back because of things that happened while you were a fetus in the womb. Yeah, <clears throat> his favorite example was rough sex between mom and dad Jeez. and that and that dad had dad had been so vigorous in his lovemaking i'll try to keep it clean here uh that it had knocked the fetus out and then as the theory of dianetics is that when you're knocked out things people say get absorbed by what's called the reactive mind in a in a way that's um nonsensical and so that 40 years later you that that bizarre thought you had as a fetus can be re-stimulated and, and, and then produce all kinds of negative effects in your life. So, and there's absolutely no science to any of this. It's ridiculous, but it captured the imagination and people, I don't know if you saw the movie, The Master. Oh yeah. Which um, ultimately kind of disappointed me. I thought it was a little slow. And yeah, uh, I read the script that they had before. The, the, the original script I think was much better and I wish they'd stuck to it, but they did us all a, a really good favor because there's a little quick scene showing them going through that rebirth process where they're acting out their births. And that's what Dianetics was in 1950. These people would get together and try to remember what it had been like to be in the womb and to go through the birth canal and then remember what happened in that period that is still sticking with you today and holding you back. So I suppose in some way there's a lot to Scientology that is just the product of weirdly good timing. Right, that like LRH comes up, and 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 there's Aleister Crowley, and he's indirectly related to Aleister Crowley in some ways too, and 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 there's this whole like um, you know post-war malaise, and then there's the '60s and the sort of you know new thought, new age movement, and all that sort of thing. And he really right. seems to feed off of all of that stuff. And then you also mentioned that you know he dies, and then Tom Cruise happens, and it's so it's it's you know is is Scientology just kind of being held together by? a bunch of lucky coincidences and eventually their time's going to run out <laughs> or have they, have they ingrained themselves so deeply within the, the, the Hollywood structure that they are basically just here to stay? Well, I think they've lost a lot of influence in Hollywood and, and uh, they are definitely a dwindling organization and they don't have the influence they once had, but yes, they have had some fantastic good luck and good timing, but also they're just so resilient I mean, right. you know, in 1977, the largest FBI raid in the agency's history occurred when they raided the Church of Scientology in Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., and took 100,000 documents and then sent 11 people to prison, 11 top people, including the wife of the founder, L. Ron Hubbard's wife, Mary Sue. Now, most groups would just be wiped out by that. I mean, we're watching how Nexium is being wiped out by a federal prosecution. 
but they're so resilient. They immediately started working against that. I mean, the day after the raid, they just got into court and started fighting it. And they did a lot of things to make sure that by the time those people went to prison, it was on like page 24 and nobody cared. And they just, they know they're very good at finding a way to uh, overcome obstacles. So yes, today it's weaker, it's smaller. People laugh at them. The press is, has just, you know, is really uh, ridiculing them. But they find a way to get a few new people and get more millions out of rich donors. So um, I got to hand it to them. They're kind of like the cockroach. It's tough, tough to get rid of them. <laughs> There's a couple more things that I, I, I definitely want to get your take on. One of them I actually read today on your website, this, this thing with uh, John Travolta and um, Lisa Marie Presley. I wonder if you think that between that and Leah Remini and Mike Rinder just launching their podcast and what's going on with Danny Masterson and, and, and what might possibly happen in, in, in the process of his uh, legal case. Is that triple threat um, something of a, of a real threat to, to Scientology? I think it is. I mean, I, I think that uh, we were expecting 2020 to be a really significant year because uh, not just the Masterson lawsuit, but there were a couple other there was a legal team that showed up last year that was basically loaded for bear and said, okay, we're taking on Scientology. Okay. And they put, they, they, they filed these three big lawsuits and with promises of many more. I talked to people, various people that expected to be plaintiffs in their other lawsuits. And so we were, you know, in the way, the way the courts work is, although they were filed between June and like September or something, it takes a while for lawsuits to really get going and so, this, you know, I thought, okay, 2020 is going to be it. This is going to be so great because I felt that there was going to be some, you know, we were still waiting to hear about criminal charges on Danny Madison. The civil lawsuit had been filed. I'd been hearing some things about maybe some other agencies being interested. I thought there was a lot of potential there. And then things kind of fell apart, not just the pandemic delaying everything, but two of those first three lawsuits got derailed. And uh, the massive one is still going, but it's got some challenges facing it. Uh, and so then it seemed like, oh, you know, like, like everything else in 2020, it's kind of got all messed up, but then Danny did get charged uh, a few weeks ago, finally, after three years of investigation. And now he's facing, I, I had predicted he was going to face 25 to life, but he's facing 45 to life. And, um, and yeah, uh, there's, there's, uh, the, the lawsuit, the, the criminal prosecution is going to help the lawsuit. And look, most lawsuits just end up with somebody paying somebody else. But I think what we're what what most people watching are really interested in is these lawsuits forcing Scientology to, uh, you know, open up about their involvement in these things. And so it could be very bad for them. So yeah, this could be this could still end up being a very tough year for Scientology. Would they be forced to like hand over his audits? I mean, it seems like they write down every single thing. I mean, they've got to have him on paper, on tape saying, you know, these things that he's been accused of, if, you know, that he's allegedly been accused of, I just want to say. But like, you know, could the feds actually get control of those things? I'll tell you what, Mike, why haven't they already? There you we, go. We, know, we know all these things are written in files at the Hollywood Celebrity Center. Why has there not been a knock on the door at the Hollywood Celebrity Center yet? It's just... It's just a shame. I don't understand why these agencies are so shy when it comes to Scientology, because um, Scientology writes everything down. 
you know, and, it's like the mob. Yeah, it's what the mob did. <laughs> well, I'll give you one spooky example. So after I, I call them victim A, B, and C, because I'm the one that first broke the story about the, the rape investigation back in 2017. Victim A then identified herself as Chrissy Bixler because Masterson's assistant outed her. Um, but uh, victim B and victim C are still unnamed. After victim B was attacked in uh, at a party in uh, April 2003, she went to the Hollywood Celebrity Center and 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 complained about. Or I don't know if she went to the Hollywood Center, but she complained to Scientology. They sent her to the Hollywood Celebrity Center and put her through this auditing to convince her that awful things she had done in past lives were what made her a victim in this life. I mean, this is what Scientology does to try to convince you not to report things to the LAPD. She was interrogated at the Hollywood Celebrity Center by an auditor named Angie LeClaire. Angie LeClaire is a very well-known figure at the Hollywood Celebrity Center. She, she worked with all of the big celebrities. She also interrogated Danny Masterson. If there's anybody who knows all about that incident that night, it's Angie LeClaire. And guess who the LAPD can't find? Scientology made her disappear. I mean, this is the kind of thing Scientology will do in order to thwart investigations into what it does. But, her, you know, the files should still be there. You know, the files on all these interrogations should still be at the Hollywood Celebrity Center. And I don't know why law enforcement doesn't get a little tougher about this. <laughs> all right. Um, one more thing I, I definitely I just need to get off my chest, which is another kind of conclusion that I have reached on my own about about Scientology. And I want to see what, what your uh, perspective on this is. I, I'm under the impression that the, the Lord Xenu thing, the, the, whole, the whole aliens and volcanoes and all that nonsense, mm-hmm. my impression is that is something of a, of a test of kind of, of loyalty. In other words, it's, it's, it's something that the Scientologists do that once you find out about that, like if you believe that shit, then you are definitely in for good. And to me, it sort of seems like that's its only real function, and that it is sort of overplayed by um, by, by by pop media. That's really an interesting question to put it that way. Uh, you know, yeah, when you think about the way Paul Haggis described it in the movie Going Clear, right? The way he said, "What is this?" and he he, he did think it might be some kind of a test, but. One thing that, uh, that, that most people don't know about it is that there's actually a ton of wild, crazy space opera in Scientology before you get to that level, which is called OT3, and learn about mm-hmm. Xenu. Um, you know, his, his early lectures, Hubbard's early lectures had all kinds of crazy stuff about invading, uh, you know, civilizations and billion-year civilizations he was in. You know, just crazy. Like, you know, at one, at one point he had a lecture where he described that 40,000 years ago he was, he was a race car driver on Earth uh, in a previous civilization. I mean, just wild, wild stuff. So it's not that it's Xenu and, you know, r- overseeing 76 planets and, and having this genocide that's really shocking to Scientologists. What's shocking to Scientologists about that material is remember I was telling you that one of the central things about Scientology is they're always asking about you, 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 you. You tell us what you remember. You tell us where you were a billion years ago. They never tell you what that history is until you get to OT3. It's the first time you may have been in Scientology, 20, 25 years. You get to OT3 and suddenly Hubbard is telling you what happened on this planet 75 million years ago and how it affects you today. That's what shocks them because Hubbard has never done that before and he's not supposed to. 
So I've talked to Scientologists said that's that's really what made them scratch their heads about it. But they also say, see, the they take you take care of the Xenu thing in minutes. You never hear about Xenu again. The important thing about that level is that the the point about the Xenu story is he left behind all these um, thetans here on Earth. You are a thetan, but there are extra thetans that were left behind from that genocide, and they are attached to you. You can't see them, but there are hundreds or thousands of these. Uh, they call them body thetans. They're angry, they're confused, they're attached to you, and they're causing all of your problems. So now, after spending 10 or 15 years of this counseling to help yourself, now you need to go through counseling to figure out how to get these angry thetans to go away from you. And that's like the next 10 years of your Scientology career, OT3, OT4, OT5, OT6, OT7. And OT7 is the longest one. I've talked to people it took 20 years for them to get to OT through OT7. So all through those levels, you're driving away body thetans. You're not talking about Xenu. Xenu's forgotten after the first hour. And that's that's the I think that's the thing that some Scientologists and even ex-Scientologists are sensitive to, is you know, when they when they find out you're a Scientologist, oh, you believe in Xenu? And they're just like, that's that was like one hour, one day of my 30-year career, you know. Um but no, the important thing of it is that it introduces the idea of body things, and then you're spending so much time and so much money. I mean, those upper OT levels, they can cost forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars per level, and it's years. And the celebrities they have to do it too. They the celebrities definitely get treated differently, and they have a lot of perks and privileges. But Kirstie Alley's OT eight, you know, Kelly Preston was OT eight. So they have gone through all these years between OT3 and OT7 driving away these invisible beings. You know, Scientology is basically ghost stories and um, the kind of sort of spiritualism from past centuries turned into a mid-century business fetish. Yeah, yeah. Because when you're talking about it, too, I'm reminded of like this. This is all happening around the same time that like Chariot of the Gods came out and you know the idea of like ancient aliens and that sort of thing was pretty popular among these sort of seeker movements um so i can totally see why people heard hubbard say that and just bought well, it. i even think of like stranger in a strange land and like you know the whole term of rock and like just the whole new wave sort of therapies coming in i can understand like seeing a way to latch onto that and make a profit and then it sort of Growing beyond your wildest imagination, which for him was pretty fucking wild, I guess. Well, you know, Heinlein was one of uh, Hubbard's best friends. Yeah. Oh, and 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 he actually he parodied um, Dianetics in in some of his works. Mm. I think I think Stranger in Strange Land may have been a reaction to it because he he really liked Hubbard a lot, but I don't think he had a whole lot of regard for Dianetics and psychology. <laughs> <laughs> More just like this guy can write a lot of pages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, we're gonna let you go, um, Tony. Uh, but I really—it's been so much fun. I really appreciate. I could talk to you for hours about this, but uh, I'm not gonna not gonna consume too much of your time. Fun questions. Thanks, guys. This was great. Tony Ortega writes about Scientology at the Underground Bunker, which you can access at TonyOrtega.org. Thanks again, Tony. Thank you, guys. Uh, keep doing more Z-News work. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
Is that okay?